I'm John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema, and welcome to Profiles. On Profiles, we speak with noted writers, artists, scholars, and others to get to know the person behind the public image. Our guest today is the world-renowned film director Peter Weir. Peter helped define the renaissance or new wave of the Australian cinema of the 1970s and 80s, which firmly staked its claim to the piece of the international art house scene. His captivating images of Australia, haunting and transcendent, brought audiences visions of landscapes and cultures previously neglected by mainstream cinema. His Hollywood films, beginning with Witness in 1985, would earn him awards and nominations that included a total of six Oscar nominations, four for directing for Witness, Dead Poets Society, The Truman Show, and Master and Commander, one for writing of Green Card, and one for producing or best picture of Master and Commander. It's truly an incredible career. So, Peter, thank you for joining us on Profiles. Thank you for having me, John. And I'd also like to thank you for spending two days here at Indiana University, engaging our students, our university, uh, and more, most importantly to me, uh, being at the films at the IU Cinema. Well, it's a, it, a complete surprise to me. I said, you know, joking, but kind of half serious, that it was, uh, it was like stumbling across a sort of Renaissance city, you know, like a sort of Florence or something at... You know, I don't know if you have any Medicis here. You probably do who are, you know, beneficiaries or donors to the um, establishment. But it's it's like a a town built for not just for learning but for culture. And um, I'm I'm delighted to be here and honored that you're, you know, featuring me in your cinema program. There was, were conscious decisions made over 60 or 70 years ago that the university uh, would try to bring the world to Indiana. And, uh-huh. and uh, the noted president, Herman B. Wells, thought that the, the best way to do that was through the arts. And, and so this has been a very arts-minded university ever since. I see. And it certainly works. Yeah. Thanks. Is it strange having your career, your 40-plus year career, reduced to a one-minute introduction and highlighting all the awards, awards and nominations, which completely neglects all the nuances in your films and, and your career? I mean, is that a... Well, it's, it's curious looking back, and you can do that in a new way. Of course, as someone pointed out, uh, you know, I think it was you, actually, that in the old days, you know, with which I was a part, you know, let's say in the... In the in the 1970s and 80s, you know, you've made a film and it disappeared more or less, unless it came up on the midday movie right. uh, or in some, you know, retro house. Then videotape came, but, you know, it uh, didn't take that much notice of it and preferred film to videotape. And then the DVD, and now the quality was getting really good. And we know where we are now, film has, has been eclipsed. So suddenly you can have your entire working life downloaded in a very short time and people can catch up with your films and your your work and within a fairly short space of time know a lot about you. Right. Uh, it's actually a pleasure for a filmmaker to think that these films are preserved. At the same time, it's rather rather daunting that, that people can sort of talk about your life, you know, in whatever length of time they want to. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, of course. And, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll remedy that with this conversation. So we'll we'll get to know more about you. But speaking of awards, uh, you know, I have to ask what what do awards and nominations like this mean to uh, an artist like yourself? Say beyond the financial. Of course, you want to keep yeah. working. Uh, but of course, you're delighted um, uh, to be nominated. You've heard these kind of things before, but it is true. The nomination is the real pleasure, sure. Because unfortunately, somebody has to win, and you know, particularly Academy Awards, as you sit there, 
in your seat and your name is read out amongst the others, uh, five in total, something inside of you, some little monster, I I think uh, it was referred to recently um, by Inarata when he accepted his award, some little monster says, win, 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 you know, some horrible creature. Uh, Then four of us don't win. And so in the second the winner is announced, and it's not you, as in my, I haven't won one, it's gone. The right. beast is gone, and you're, you're yourself again. So in other words, it's not really natural. Right. Uh, and in some ways, it would be wonderful if it was a nomination process and that you were all winners in a right. way. Right. Because how can you, you know, we're not, you know, uh, athletes. We're not people who could be compared on a timing or something, a 100-meter dash. Uh, they're all so different, right? But it's it creates an excitement, and um, and there's a, definitely a pleasure when you do win something. Sure, sure. And there it is. You know, I tend not to be one of those put it on display um, people. I tend to have them sort of put away a bit. I don't want to be, think about it too much. And yeah. I remember meeting Betty Davis. I was going to work with her in a very latter years on a film that didn't happen for me. But I went to meet her in her apartment in Los Angeles. And she was talking about awards, and she sort of kicked at one point with her foot, left foot, I remember, saying, well, there are the awards. And she kicked, and four Academy Awards that were on the floor, sort of holding the door open, all clanked and bumped each other. That's funny. (laughs) So they they ended up as doorstops. Literally, yeah. She enjoyed doing that, I think. What what about the the David Lean Award from BAFTA? Was that special for you? Oh, very much uh, you, so. Very much them, so. Yeah. How nice that it's the David Lean Award because right. of, um, you know, this man's wonderful work and, and certainly as a filmmaker of my generation, you know, which is to say I was making uh, f- features in the 1970s, starting in, in 1973. Right. I mean, he was, yeah, he threw a huge shadow across the landscape. And, um, of course, you would pick Lawrence of Arabia, but there are others of his work, all his films, really. Right. Uh, and he was an inspiration. So to have the award in, in his name was was um, uh, a double kind of honor. It gave it gave it weight. Sure. And um, and I was lucky enough to get it on two occasions. We we opened the IU Cinema with a David Lean series. In fact, our oh, op- our opening night film was uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which is a personal favorite of of mine. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's just uh, you can s- sort of almost not only revisit the film, but revisit your own past when you sit with that. I think it brings back for me that sort of feeling of potential that I was going to enter also into this world of sure. filmmaking in his footsteps. So, so let's let's talk about your early career, and and mm. I don't want to say it's a mystery, but you you dabbled in a lot of things, and and so you started at university um, and decided to to move out. You, I don't know if it was restlessness that made you decide to go abroad on a, a quite a long journey, but then you also, uh, I don't I don't want to say played around in, but you also were seriously thinking about a career in performance mm. as as an improv actor or as an actor and doing mm. comedy routines, et cetera. Can you talk about how any of those may have influenced your uh, your path to becoming a filmmaker? Well, really, it, it, it was uh, a sea voyage that changed my life. Uh, I grew up in Sydney, um, went to the movies like any kid did on a Saturday afternoon, you know, mostly American pictures, very similar, I would think, to... to uh, those of my generation here in America, you know, with the Saturday that was serial and, you know, there was this sort of, you know, you love cowboys or gangsters pictures. And um, 
didn't we didn't have a film industry. We had uh, an occasional film from from an Australian, Charles Chevelle particularly, Jeddah, I remember. But there was no industry. Uh, so we mostly got American pictures on that Saturday afternoon and British horror films, hammer horror pictures. Sure. So that was my diet. This was before <clears throat> television. And so as I grew up, lucky enough to be beside Sydney Harbour, I used to watch the great ocean liners going out. That was the way to go to Europe and was determined to be on one. And so there I was at 20 heading on what was, a, you know, for, for Australians, a sort of working holiday, usually a year and a half or so. Five-week voyage to Greece. And on board that ship, I got involved in the ship's review uh, with a couple of other young Australians and also opened up their closed-circuit television booth, I won't say station, sure. about as large as this radio booth we're in, in which they had a live uh, broadcast to the bars in the, and lounges in, on board the ship. The ship was probably about 700 passengers. And we got permission to put on a show, you know. It's like Mickey mm. Rooney. Hey, let's put on a show. And so uh, we, what was the easiest thing to do was an interview show right. with fictitious passengers. And so we did six shows. And in the Indian Ocean, it was the <laughs> only entertainment available nice. in 1965. Uh, eventually, we were banned. Uh, after uh, the, the inspector of lifeboats uh, was a guest on the show who reported severe rust in the rollocks on the lifeboats and the probability we would not be able to launch a lifeboat. The captain said, get rid of them. Uh, but I got off that ship. Myself and my mates, the only pale people, I think, on that ship who had not been sitting around the swimming pool, determined that my life would be in entertainment. And so it was then over a period in London and back in Sydney year or so later, that I had to work my way through to find out what it was I wanted to do. And I made short films. I was at university, sketch comedy reviews, and so acting, writing, and decided I was more suited to be behind the camera. You, you spoke um, the other day in an interview about uh, the acting routines and the improvisation that you would do with your, your partner, your acting yeah. partner, how it became, and I'm um, sorry, I'm going to paraphrase, but... Uh, mental gymnastics or exercises for yeah. your brain. And, and you've also talked about uh, a bit in your writing about, you know, tapping into the subconscious. Do you think things like that still affect, you know, the way you think about films or the way you write for films? Um, I mean, do you still try to keep your brain active through, you know, similar exercises or other things? I do. And you're right to to recall uh, the, the, my mentioning about the making up comedy sketches with Graham, my friend, uh, in which we just put the tape recorder on. Occasionally would have each brought a prop along to that work session, some oddity. It might be a sort of strange piece of wood or it might be a sort of odd sort of uh, carving or something. And we'd have to talk about that item uh, and pick up a bit of dialogue. And out of it, we might get a sketch. And I do think it's... Um, extremely helpful to developing your imagination. Sure. Uh, and, and I think of uh, uh, Boonewell when he was uh, working with Jean-Claude Carrier on, on, on several films. Carrier recounts in his book about screenwriting how when he and Boonewell would meet in the morning, they used to go to a hotel out of Paris to work intensely on the script without distraction. They had to recount to each other any dreams they'd had. Uh, then at the end of the day, after a break, they'd have their evening cocktail 
and each had to tell the other a story. Hmm. These were conditions Bunuel put on their working relationship. Didn't matter if the story was made up or was something from anecdote from your life. Every day. And uh, so I, I've tended to do that, in, not literally in that way, but in other ways, you know, try to keep up my writing. You know, I right. think I'm writing's my second suit, but you had to write as a, as a young Australian filmmaker. Right. There were no writers to go to. And so I'll tend to try and write short stories, you know, to, to keep my hand in and collect anything I can. Uh, even on this trip, you know, I've seen a sure. couple of small things walking around um, um, Bloomington, which, uh, for example, there was a bird that was in the um, snow was melting and he was standing in front of a sort of air conditioning outlet of some kind, hot air. Sure. Just drying his feathers, one of these little orange-breasted hmm. uh, birds. And he was having a fabulous type of expression, you know, these feathers were flapping and it's just turning himself a little to dry on the right wing and then turn to the left wing. <laughs> so in my mind, I thought about that. And, you know, that's not exactly a story. But um, anyway, good to keep your mind active with uh, observations. Well, I, I've noticed that being with you for a couple of days, that uh, you are very observant. You're, you're very inquisitive. You you seem to take in the natural world as well as, you know, things that that are thrown your way. You're, you're, you're engaged. And, and how important do you think that is for any artist, uh, whether it's a filmmaker, whether it's a writer, whether it's a photographer, to to be engaged with their surroundings? Well, I've put it another way and say I think it's important to be bored. Okay. Uh, which is one of the concerns about the kind of mass stimulation that's come along with uh, all of the various, you know, the internet and uh, and the and the and the iPhones and so on. That never a dull moment. Whereas sure. I think, you know, if you that may suit some. But I think if you're in any way in the creative world, and you know maybe it's good for you anyway, is to, if you're bored, then yes, there's a period where you you find it difficult. You know, you've got to wait for right. something or other. But then if you if you're calm and just just say, well, you know, I have to spend an hour and a half here right. on waiting for the dentist order, uh, just let your mind wander and roam, and it can come up with the most interesting things. You can reflect on what happened yesterday. Right. or what it, that phone call meant, or that article in the paper, or what your grandfather said 15 years ago. Uh, in other words, I think things start to bubble up from right. wherever they are. We call it unco- the unconscious, perhaps, or other words, subconscious. But I think for a creative person, that's where some of the really good stuff comes from. Uh, you, you certainly need your conscious mind to work out a plot or you know, sure. whatever, but... I think it's important and very important for children to be bored. I think it should be compulsory. You can remember either, you're, you know, in my case, my childhood pre-television, where you were told by your mother, get outside, stop playing around and getting under my feet, get outside and don't run on the road. That was about the only thing yeah. that you had to be aware of. And, you know, not many toys, you know, so you tend to play with some sticks and things. Right. And sometimes you'll see it in a... Way I don't mean to trivialize it, but in a very poor society, you might see right. in a documentary in a third world country, you'll see little children playing with sticks and stones in the dirt and making a pattern. Or right, right. And I think, well, good luck to them. You know, that's their imagination at work. Yeah, the the vision as you're speaking about that that comes to mind is the opening sequence of Boyhood, right? The the little boy laying on the, the oh yeah, isn't it on the absolutely grass, you know, looking up and. And, yes. and, and right, having having the freedom, having the luxury, 
it shouldn't be a luxury, but having making the, uh, boredom an important part of uh, someone's life, or, or yes. at least getting them outside. To well, at least here's a phrase occurs to me: daydreaming. Right, exactly. Which is really a byproduct of boredom, I suppose. Before we dig into your films, do you do you have an early film experience that either you remember as being significant or? Um, oh yeah, I think do. everybody does. I, I mean, for me, it was. The Wizard of Oz. And when we came out of it, I remember my auntie saying, I think they were too young for it Hmm. because we must have seen sort of uh, faces that were visibly, you know, showing signs of the disturbance of the film. You know, I don't know what age I was, maybe six or seven. Uh, But I do remember it looking at it. I was just astonishing and uh, scary and, uh, and full of wonder. Uh, which reminds me of a a wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker style that I cut out and saved, which was a little front of house box office, and there's the clerk behind the the, the glass, and there's a sad, de- de- draw, you know, downtrodden looking middle aged woman with a shopping bag, and she looks a bit tired, and she says as she holds her money toward the the, the ticket box, but will it give me back my sense of wonder? Mm. <laughs> uh, so uh, I do think that's what uh, those early film experiences are. They were there was a sense of wonder and a sense of not knowing. It was you know part of being a child, of course, is not knowing. Right. And uh, there's something wonderful about that. I mean, it's it's a component of innocence. Uh, so those first films have, as we know, tremendous impact upon you, particularly before. Um, you know, all of the images available to us now, and I'm sure they sure. still have their effect in their own way. We're going to come back to the thought of not knowing here later mm. on. Um, but but we also, we named your film series Full of Wonder, Films of Peter Weir. Uh, and and I think it, it absolutely comes across in your films as well. Your your first two feature films, and, and I'm going to use Homesdale mm. as a feature, as a short feature, but your uh, first two feature films, Homesdale in 1971 and The mm. Cars That Ate Paris uh, in 1974, uh, were genre films. And so uh, my question would be, um, did you know about what was happening in America at the time? And th- there were a lot of, lot of genre films being made uh, by American directors and many of them coming out of the Corman School as well. Did that influence you or, or was a genre film uh, part of your other upbringing with the Hammer films or do you know why you chose that direction first? I think it's easier uh, and, a, and a natural way to start. In a sense, you've got a kind of off-the-rack paradigm in which you can place your own particular um, style or, or find your own style. Sure. Uh, so the horror film is is convenient. Also, it's something to do with, I think, your childhood. You know, it is, you know, as we know, uh, scary things are very interesting to children as long as they feel somewhat well, they feel safe. Right. That you like to be scared. And in a sense, I think you are scared. And uh, that's why you cling. You know, obviously, you know, you've got your parents and you feel safe and hopefully in in your home. But you love to go out and just have a little bit of fear. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, to be as a young person making a film, you know, in my case, in my 20s, it wasn't that long um, after I, you know, loved those Hammer Horror films in particular and certain of the genre from America. So I th- I thought, you know, that was a good way to start, really, was to 
You know, the very first one was probably a little more of the sort of British style, right. Holmesdale, a creepy guest house you know, yeah. in which strange things happened on the weekend as the guests came there. Cars of Date Paris, a fairly simple idea of uh, rather based on the Cornish pirates of the 19th century who used to move the light at night or turn it off the, the uh, uh, lighthouse. And so ships would be wrecked and they would then go and, and get hold, salvage the goods and apparently an accident. So I did that with a country town that had a bad road leading into it that uh, they'd set up a kind of trap. And so they would catch cars, as it were, and then they would strip them down and sell the parts and so on. Uh, so these were convenient ways of, of getting started and not being too daunting. That was for me. For others, they would start simply writing something that was peculiarly their own and right. original. But uh, I had a lot of fun with those films. But, but even with Cars, Cars was ambitious for for mm. a genre film. And um, I kept thinking uh, upon seeing it again a couple a week ago or so that uh, – your crew must have had fun making that film. I mean, it seems anyway, or at least the the folks driving the cars and... Uh... Well, I'll correct it. I don't know that actually your first film can be fun. It's too daunting, too demanding. It remains the hardest film of, of all that I've made. And really? that would include something, you know, including Master and Commander, which was tough enough logistically and in all ways. But the first film, you know so little, you're winging it. You really are flying on one engine. And it seems easier from a distance. When you get to it, you, you just can't believe how, how little time there is in a day. Right. So, and I had one month to make the film. And it was ambition in the sense we had a lot of you know, car accidents, and, and, you know, given the plot. And so I had to achieve a certain amount a day, and I did, and we got through it. But... Uh, I was exhausted by it, okay. and I've you know compared notes with others. It's a fairly similar kind of experience, I right. think. Well, you're, you're figuring things out, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So the the film uh, was uh, entered into the Cannes Film Festival. Mm. It was accepted and and reviewed well, uh, mm. from what I've read. Uh, was that a validation that you know, first time first major feature <laughs> film, and you're at Cannes? Um, Yes, it was. It it um, it was exciting. I mean, we the producers and I, you know, we we're in the late twenties. Uh, we we took over certain props. You know, we took over some clothes from the film and mm. uh, that the young people had worn, and we had a car in it that was the young kids had built in the town. They they made kind of uh, hot rods out of their cars with animal themes, and so we had a VW, the classic bug shape, yeah, covered with spikes. You know, like a hedgehog. And uh, so we actually bought a VW, an old one, in Cannes or in Nice, had it sprayed silver as it was in the film, and we sure. bought the spikes over. Oh, my Can gosh. You believe it? <laughs> I remember the guy at Frenchman at Customs saying, and what is this in the bag here? Or what are these things? And we said, oh, there's spikes to put on a VW. He said, I don't understand. <laughs> what are you talking about? Fine. So we made the car up and then did a stunt in the street and had the car driven along the street. We dressed as a couple of these kind of thugs sure. from the film. <laughs> Uh, to get publicity. And it worked, I'm assuming. Well, they did. The, the publicist yeah. said to us, he said, no one does this kind of stuff anymore. You know, so I thought that's what you did at Cannes. You know. nice. But it got us uh, overflow houses. <laughs> nice. We're going to jump to uh, your next film then, mm. Picnic at Hanging Rock. And uh, we, we just screened it at the cinema. And it remains haunting. It remains a, a film that uh, sticks with people. It's also a film that most people know the premise going into, at least mm. uh, in, in retrospect. And so um, you created from the uh, the author? 
Uh, Joan Lindsay. Joan Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you created your tone for the film uh, based on the book, but you, you created uh, a feel that uh, you thought was important mm. knowing that the, the audience was going to know the ending and, and maybe not have a payoff. Can you, can you talk about that process of trying to create this, this haunting, eerie mm. tone for the film? Well, here you had a, a fiction book written by Joan Lindsay in the 1960s somewhere. Uh, she hadn't written much, wrote it in the latter part of her life. She was married to a very famous painter. It was almost like a kind of hobby, really. But she had this great idea of a party of schoolgirls in 1900 celebrating St. Valentine's Day at a local geological marvel uh, in the countryside, a kind of explosion of boulders, great huge boulder rocks bubbled up from the earth millions of years ago called Hanging Rock. Mm -hmm. So they have their picnic there during the afternoon. Several of the girls, uh, four of them go for a walk and uh, three of them disappear. And one of them comes back down and says, the girls, I can't, they, they went up the rocks and there's nowhere to be found. A search results, they are never found, or one of them is found, and she can't remember what happened. Hmm. So here was potentially a very frustrating film for the audience. On the other hand, that's where its power lay, that it was a mystery without a solution. And I had to create a film in which you didn't almost didn't want there to be a solution that it became dreamlike right and so it was a fascinating um, exercise for a filmmaker to create this mood which I knew I had to get right otherwise people would say you know well come on who did it or what happened I, you know it's a trick I have a quote from uh, an interview when the film came out it says uh, there are after all within our own minds things which we know less about than the disappearance at Hanging Rock. And I guess I'd like to play with the idea of maybe the unseen, the untold, Mm. maybe the unresolved in film. Do you think uh, in film and in art uh, there holds a power of what you don't show or what you don't resolve that Mm. that might give a film staying power, might give a film, uh, uh, make a film a great piece for conversation, for audiences, uh, for them to work through in their own minds? Do you you think it's important to... uh, at least in some films, to, to work with or play with that uh, premise? I th- you know, it's, it just it doesn't happen that often, I think. I think okay. most stories probably do resolve themselves and you, you're left with a feeling which may, you know, be so powerful that it, you would call it a, a kind of an experience that only art can give you. Okay. So there's no formula. And uh, certainly this kind of mystery that uh, clings around this film like a sort of mist is less usual and there's a danger of it appearing to be being pretentious in a way I mean it really has to work but in this case disappearance is such a terrible thing right. it's bad enough for poor people to not have a body when, when uh, a loved one perishes but to not know how they perished is worse Still, right. So right. these girls that disappeared set up this uh, uh, this kind of situation, and in doing research, you know, I was particularly drawn to uh, accounts of uh, widows, particularly for, of soldiers in the First World War, uh, whose um, uh, loved ones, uh, husband or whatever, were, were reported missing in action, then sure. presumed dead, but there's nobody, and particularly then, as we know, in the kind of catastrophic explosions in those trenches, the, the, the weight of, uh, of the power of the explosive devices, that bodies were simply vaporized. Mm-hmm. Yet they waited because there were reports of uh, 
of soldiers suffering from memory loss who are in hospitals in uh, France and England. Right. Maybe he's there. Uh, they made inquiries. No. Well, maybe he, he's wandering the countryside and will come. So, yeah. you know, there was never any sort of end to this sort of suffering. So I knew that this was really what I was playing with in this story, that the local townspeople and everyone would be very agitated by sure. this lack of resolution. So well, it was a specific case, I think. Well, and very effectively. I, I, I guess I'll leave that. I, I, I'm just thinking of um, where there are gaps sometimes for the mind to kind of fill in. And, and you don't have to tell your audience too much at, at times. You do want them to have a complete experience. But hmm. um, you know, sometimes, whether it's film or whether it's painting or uh, hmm. other arts, um, for me, I, I think I enjoy those experiences where it takes me – some thinking to get from point A to point B, mm. and and um, but again, I think it's a case by case situation. I also, well, it's, it's, let's just take it broader to sure. to art itself. You know, it is a mystery why something has power. Right. I mean, I, I took a period a period off during films and studied the interviews of Matisse, uh, the painter, and the letters of Van Gogh mm. to his brother and uh, to Theo, and within them, I was just looking for clues as to how they work, particularly in, in relation to uh, still lives. I mean, why, why had I felt weak at the knees looking at a vase of sunflowers of Van Gogh's in Paris mm-hmm. when I saw them in a lovely exhibition and had similar effect with some of the still lives of Matisse? Because it's one thing to have a figure, you can react to it, it's a landscape or whatever, but simply, you know, a vase of flowers, that's not something that most men, you know, will be stopped by. You sure. know, you might appreciate it. But to actually, how could they have put so much power into that? It's just paint. Uh, so I thought you could you can do this with film. And what you have to do somehow, it's, it's the only way to say it, is you have to put a little bit of your soul into it. Sure. And how do you do that? You know, I mean, I don't know uh, how those painters did it or how I might aspire to do it. But... It is possible to impregnate an artifact, a solid artifact with power and uh, for it to be transmitted to, a, to the viewer. Okay. Uh, so I tried to put it out of my mind because it's too hot to handle. And the more you handle it, the less likely you are to ever be able to really get it working. But uh, I, was, uh, I thought something is really going on here and it's worth keeping my mind open, really, as I make each film. I think it's unexplainable sometimes, uh, the power of, of a piece of art. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I've literally been brought to tears yeah. in front of a piece of artwork or a piece of music. And yeah. you can't explain it, but it touches something, you know, in oh, your core. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, I don't know why it comes to mind. And not so long ago in the papers, the images of uh, uh, those cruel and wicked people um, – uh, Islamist extremists destroying art uh, right. in wherever it was in Syria, I think, and actually taking hammers and chisels, the very items used to create these early, what well, I think, Assyrian um, figures or, or, or gods, and hammering and chiseling them to pieces and right. wrecking them with grinders. You know, it was yeah. like anti-artists. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of art and form, um, and, and this is a question I was going to pose to you earlier, but um, what do you think 
is the power, the most powerful aspect of film as an art form? So you have moving images, you have music, you have dialogue. What, what, do you, what do you think might be the most powerful as, aspect of film in a combination, uh, you know, as a whole as an art form? And oh, I would say I would have to pick uh, on the close-up. I think if you take, you know, the, the, the system of conveyance. You know, the close-up, despite all our inventions, sound and color and uh, um, 3D and CGI and so forth, uh, the close-up remains the invention. Uh, we cannot see a face that big anywhere. Right. And therefore, we're talking about the cinema because you, you're on your uh, laptop or whatever, your television set, they're basically the size of a human being in a room. But when you see this face on a big screen, you know, in a, even a medium shot, you see the eyes themselves are as big as, you know, sort of, you know, foot and a half across. And I think that saying, I'm sure it's Shakespeare, the eyes are windows to the soul. I think you can get a kind of look at, that you can't get any other way out of face. And it's kind of miraculous. Now, when that face belongs to someone very beautiful or somebody a great actor, uh, or what we call a star, which is simply trying to describe the indescribable. Right. The camera loves them, you know, for whatever reason we don't know. Then I think that is probably where I'd begin with uh, saying that I'm affected in a way I can't, I don't know the words to describe, but it goes inside somewhere, sure. that face shining out from the screen. Sometimes those images, in my own experience, are black and white. There's something more dreamlike about black and white because it's obviously not, not representational of our world. Uh, and there's some in, in very good uh, lighting cameramen when they created those close-ups, you know, in the early, you know, from the silent era through early uh, sound. They were luminous. I recently saw Morocco. What a, what a strange, interesting film. Yes. And some of those shots, you know, of Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper... I can feel them now hovering, you know, inside my mind, hovering, shimmering. Uh, and that wasn't even seeing the original sort of nitrate film or something. So I think that they, they go deep, deep, deep inside your memory banks. Not necessarily the whole story, but I think shards of the story, bits of it, scenes from it, moments are imprinted somewhere and um, stay with you for the rest of your life. I think you're right. There are many films that I don't remember the entire film, but no. there are sequences that are, are etched into my mind, and and I think they'll always remain there. Mm, I agree. Your next three films uh, were The Plumber, made for television, uh, Gallipoli, and The Year of Living Dangerously, and your productions started to get bigger. Mm. Um, and, and so with that, uh, I mean, we'll talk about the individual films, but can you talk about any major uh, uh, challenges um, as things grew to a larger scale, not only the, the projects but the expectations possibly? No, I, I think that's, it's all relative. It seems each film, you know, you don't have enough money and you don't have enough time. And each presents its creative challenges that sort of, sort of more or less, you know, match up. You know, that there's sure. never an easy film to make. So I I don't think of it like I thought I did think I'd feel that coming here to the United States, okay, some years later, nineteen eighty four, to make witness. I thought uh, it was going to be daunting because of the studio and so on. But you know, big movie star. But in actual yeah. fact, by the time I hit the set, 
it was the same as any any other film I'd made. Uh, so no, I, I don't. Th- in fact, I think I was hungry for more challenges. Okay. At the time you were talking about um, moving on, the plumber was a television uh, movie that I wrote on commission, and that was perhaps different in that it was very contained and right. seventy minutes long, and it was um, shot in three weeks, and that was uh, you know uh, not on the scale of of my next feature film, Gallipoli, which really did have shooting in Cairo, um, young Australian soldiers going off to the First World War, um, the first time our nation had fought as uh, a national, um, as, as a, an Australian force right. with New Zealanders on the shores of um, Gallipoli and Turkey. Uh, so we did the battle scenes in Australia and, and uh, the outback scenes there. It was Mel Gibson and uh, Mark Lee played the young soldiers. Mel was just getting established. Um, he had just a, done Mad Max before that? Mad or? Max, I think, yes. And I think The Road Warrior was due to come out. Okay. Can, um, can you talk about the, the casting of, of Mark Lee? Because I, mm, to, to my knowledge, he hadn't acted in a feature film before that? or No, he played opposite Mark and uh, opposite Mel. And he, right. uh, he was a musician. Okay. And uh, very little acting. He was very nervous, actually. And... Uh, what what made you think that he could carry this this role? I mean, it's, he, he does really well. Well, I just hired him in as to, to when I made up a brochure for the financiers. Okay, and we were to shoot just out of Sydney in some sand hills, meant to be uh, in Egypt on training. So I had just a bunch of uh, of kind of you know extras. Really, right. he was one of them. Dressed them up in you know some World War One uniforms, had some rifles and a donkey or something. Hmm. And Mark had a quality, you know, he just had a, you know, the camera really liked him and he, he right. was fun and seemed to in some ways uh, symbolize this, this sort of reckless young men who went off volunteers, right. not knowing what they were going to enter into. And uh, so I featured him strongly on the brochure. Yeah. So when I was casting, I thought, well, I'll bring him in, you know, just because he was fun. He might play one of the smaller characters. Yeah. Anyway, he was so good. He got the co-lead. I put him then with Mel. I said, look... Can you help him a bit? He's a bit nervous. Sure. Which Mel did. Yeah, there's there's an innocence about him. And, and yeah. I, it, it, was yeah. that natural in him as a person yes. as well? And still is. Okay. It's, it's one of those things. He, he hasn't done much acting since. Okay. Still looks remarkably like that young fellow. He's, he's sort of one of those people who aged very gently. Sure, and sure. And still into his music. But the first day's filming, his nerves went. I'll never forget that. We're in the outback yeah. and it was an interior scene in a, in a country house. And and he was literally shaking and his voice was disturbed. And he said, I'm Peter, I'm so sorry. I, I just can't do it. He thought he let you down. And I said, come on. You know, I thought, this can't be happening. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought I'd talk him, you know, around. You know, I said, that's okay. Let's have a cup of coffee. Off you go. You can do it. No. So I said, you know what? You love Raikuda, right? And I've got a Raikuda cassette here. It was the cassette era. I put the Raikuda on really loud. If Rye, if you're listening, or if anybody knows where I could have, please pass on my thanks to him. Because that morning, with the music blasting, I said, roll the camera. And the sound man said, well, well I, I, you know, there's no sound. I said, forget the sound. Yeah. Go on, Mark. Just go out there and just say your lines with Rye. With Rye. And he laughed, you know, at the, at the craziness of it. And so we did two or three takes with Rye playing. I said, let's do a third take and switch Rye Cooter off. And he went and did it. No kidding. And we had the sound and the performance. But And he came over to me and said... I don't know why or how, but that music blasted all, all my fear away. It was just, if you were willing to do that, yeah. then 
I'll be, I'm with you. I trust you. That's an incredible story. You, you shared something about playing music on set, but I, I mm. didn't know it was in, oh, in, in this kind of way. That's the only time I've ever done anything wow. quite like that's that. That's incredible. Although I have sometimes played the music on set. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's in the Dead Poets. I tried also to, you know, there's a kind of churchy atmosphere that can come on a film set. It all seems very sort of proper and hierarchical and sort of ritualistic. And, uh, you know, I've heard Clint Eastwood talk about this too. I think he doesn't like to say cut and action. And he just says things like, when you're ready. And it can break the atmosphere and break it down a bit. So with the young boys on Dead Poets, they were a bit nervous and so everyone was a bit self-conscious, you know. And to break all this mood, and one time I said, instead of saying action, mm-hmm. I said I would throw a balled-up piece of paper that would hit the back of the head of the person who was to first speak. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, roll camera, you know. And yeah. So there was suddenly a tension in the air because we didn't have the usual right, clapper right, book. Right. And then I'd get slightly out of sight behind the person who I knew was to speak first and throw the little <laughs> bit of paper and go ding on the back of the head and they would speak. But it yeah. became more spontaneous then, more... Natural and right. they were kids. I'm meant to be having, you know, kind of alive and having a bit of fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and also, I wanted to stop saying action. You know, yeah. such such a weird word, really. So just pulling away the formality of, of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nice. <laughs> and, and this wasn't the the last time that you would use uh, not a seasoned actor. So Alexander uh, Goodenough and uh, Witness. Yes. And again, so so instincts play a big part in being a, a filmmaker, right? Uh, and and knowing, you know, to trust those instincts. And, and well, Alexander Goodenough was a tough one because in that story and witness, you know, Harrison plays uh, Ford plays a police officer who's isolated and hiding out from other corrupt uh, members of the force. His life in danger. Uh, he's wounded. He's recovering, and he's living with Amish who've sheltered him uh, in Pennsylvania in Lancaster County, and uh, and there's a romance there, but there's a, there's an Amishman who really also loves the same girl. Right. So I knew with this movie we had to end it up with, uh, in the perhaps tradition often of uh, uh, since Shakespeare, the lovers don't get together. And so in the end, Harrison returns to the city. He can't live there that way, nor can she go to the city. So potentially you had a film ending with... Um, a kind of disappointment in a way. Right. Um, there's no real impediment. They're neither of them are married. Why don't they get together? So I had to make it feel that second choice, the Amishman who really loved her, the Kelly McGillis character, was a good, you know, and maybe even equal uh, replacement, and maybe the right. right one for her. Right. But therefore, it had to be the right man. It wasn't going to be a lot of dialogue. And my casting um, director, Diane Crittenden, said, I think I've got him. You know, I saw him, met him. You know Alexander Gudinov, he's a ballet dancer, Russian. Uh, met him last night. He's charming, very, very male, masculine. Hmm. And he has the most beautiful smile. And he came, no acting training. Yeah. Not a very, even very good when we did do the acting, but that smile lit up the screen. And yeah. I thought uh, that will work at the end of the film to see him. That's who uh, the audience will accept it. Sure. That's interesting. Uh, so both he and Mark Lee... Uh, I mean, they, yeah, they, they yeah. have trademark smiles, right? And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Mm. Isn't that an interesting thought? I didn't ever match them up. Yeah. Mm. So, so do you think your your time as a performer, uh, as a improv actor uh, doing mm. routines, may have informed the way you work with actors? 
I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I appeared on stage on, and on uh, film, mm-hmm. short films, and, and um, television to the extent of uh, pilots that we were always doing. You know, this university group and myself sure. would be Monty Python group. And yes, it gave me immense affinity with what it's like on the other side of the camera. Yeah. And therefore, very concerned that as we build toward a shot or a scene, that the crew gets quiet and that the set is for the actors. And it's not about the uh, the technical side of it. And and so I think that can only help. Sure. Mm. We're going to get to Hollywood, and we're not going to, of course, have time to go through your entire no, no, career. No, no, no. But, but, but I want to ask, um, you know, Witness was your first Hollywood film. And, mm. and did you choose it, or did, did it choose you? I, I know you were ready for more challenges you talked about, but there was also yeah. concern that it's, you know, getting bigger. And uh, how, you know, what? No, funnily enough, I said to my agent, send me only greenlit films. I only okay. want to see a greenlit film. And he said, I've got three I could send you. And I said, okay, I'll choose one of them. Okay. It was really against all my traditional instincts and way of making films in Australia. But I was ready. I really wanted to fresh landscapes. I wanted to get out. I wanted to go to, to Hollywood. Right. Like a lot of we young foreign students, uh, filmmakers, we, we always thought one day I'd love to go and make a picture in America. Of course, we've loved American films. Yeah. So he sent me three, and one of them was Witness, and I immediately loved the Amish. And I thought and read a bit about it, talked to my agent, and I said, we discovered, you know, the Amish weren't widely known about in America. And I thought, there's my doorway as a foreign director. It is through the Amish. Sure. Uh, because I'm not going over, couldn't have gone over to make a gangster film or something, you know, which would put you up against the best made here. Right, right. And, and a culture that um, that I would quite likely not get right. So that was um, that made it fascinating to me. Sure. To, to to work with the Amish and and that's what we did in Lancaster and uh, nice. uh, it still to this day fascinates me. Any time in the news, I see a shot of a buggy right. clip clopping along the highway. I remember it. I'm going to just read uh, for the, the audience out there mm. your other Hollywood features, and mm. but mm. but we're not going to again have time to talk about them. But uh, after uh, Witness was the Mosquito Coast, 1986. Dead Poets Society, 1989, Green Card, 1990, Fearless, 1993, The Truman Show, 1998, Master and Commander, I believe, 2003, and then The Way Back in, in 2010. And and so throughout this career, um, things continue to get bigger for you. In fact, uh, your, your last two projects are incredibly ambitious mm. projects. And would you ever consider uh, because these are major mm. you know you could you could call them epics in a way almost mm. Um, mm. I mean would you ever consider going back then say to a smaller project a small oh yes absolutely you would well I did recently um, you know two years ago my son is a musician and he said would you do a video clip for me uh, okay. as they used to be called I said oh that's not my kind of thing really and he said look it would help me out if you could so I listened to the album he'd recorded and picked a track which I really liked uh, and it had a kind of real mood to it. So I wrote a little story for it. It was four minutes long. Sure. And then with a couple of mates and a you know, digital camera, we went out into the countryside and shot this thing and an actor. And uh, it was challenging and interesting, you know, to get it right and the timing. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were a crew of seven or eight people and, you know, for three days filming. But I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. 
And it, and applied to it all of the same kind of uh, intensity and, and thoughtfulness that you have to do for a larger thing. Sure, sure. So it was very interesting because it did prove to me, my wife said to me, you know, you should make some more of these little smaller things. You know, does yeah. everything have to be big? So. Can, can we see that? What, what's the name of the, the song, if you don't mind? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll try you, to find it. What do you, what do you <laughs> Can you talk a bit about the uh, the look the looks of your films and and of course they they uh, they they all vary but uh, between John Seal mm. and uh, Russell Boyd, you've had two amazing cinematographers who have I think worked on at least nine of your films. Mm. Uh, how important is it to you to have either some consistency or at least consistency in relationship and well, the trust in your cinematographers? Very important. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you know, you want somebody who. Um, you don't really want someone who argues with you. Sure. Nor do you want someone who just does what you what you say. They they need to contribute. So it's it's finding that person who will help you interpret. You know what are you after? What, right. What are you looking for? And then have very good ways to come up with solutions. But a couple of general observations. I mean, firstly, it's what light falls upon. That is what cinematography is. It's not right. the camera. Right. Uh, then the camera records what the light is falling upon. So. Um, photography is all about lighting and then that's perhaps number two number one is what the light is falling upon a face you know a landscape uh, um, you know uh, an item of any kind Uh, so you know it's then it leads me at a tangent to a quote from Stanley Kubrick which is someone may have said something that he had done as very beautiful and he said well about beauty it's the power and and images it's the power behind the image so there's Mm -hmm. another thing to add to the light falling on a person or thing that uh, what is the power behind that person or within them or within the landscape that can then cause you to you know be fearful or appreciative or or be overwhelmed by the beauty so these are very interesting uh, things but it's the um, nothing like having that person beside you that you know can interpret right for you. In in many of the writings about you, um, the words truth or authenticity often come up, and and I'm going to ask maybe two questions here. Uh, one is uh, authenticity for me comes across very clearly in in your films uh, in the production detail, the detail. The, the research that goes behind things, but also the, the production design and the detail gone into that. Um, can you talk about um, the, uh, what, it, what it means to you to try to bring truth, say, to your films or to your subjects or authenticity to your films? Or do you even think about that? Oh, uh, I, I do because all today I'm constantly offered biographical material. Sure. Uh, particularly from England, you know, they're they're you know they're filming all sorts of things, and some of them really fabulous, you know. But we've recently had, uh, obviously, uh, Turing, uh, and then we've had Stephen Hawking, right, right. and you know, so there's been a number of these uh, biographical stories. But the negative is that when I'm presented with one, the producer will say, "It's a true story," you know, uh, and I, it always bothers me because the aim is to create a truth. Uh, so the fact that it's already proven to be true doesn't have any meaning because then you're going to have an actor pretend to be the person. Right, right. So it's not true anyway. Then you're going to edit the material so that's your point of view about the person, which may or may not be even close to the truth. So firstly, I prefer fiction. And within that, to 
create a truth so that when you come out of the theatre, I always love the feeling you don't know where you parked the car. You know, you're momentarily still in the film. And even better if you wake up next morning and you're still in it and maybe carry a piece of it for the rest of your life. But to do that, you have to create something that is, you know, in a way profoundly believable in itself and makes sense. You know, there's that, you know, perhaps overused phrase, you know, the the suspension of disbelief, but it's, it's pretty good. And it, uh, it is the idea of it. And when that happens, um, you really have a holiday, not just from the world you live in, but from yourself. Uh, you forget yourself for a while. Right, right. And that lovely holiday from all of your concerns and worries, you know, and, and issues and so on is worth much more than the price of the ticket you paid. Yeah, no question. Um, can I ask about your your wife Wendy's mm. uh, contributions to your films as either production designer or costume designer? Mm. And so um, the story goes that you met her on that long trip abroad, uh, yeah, early on. And, and but she's been involved in your films pretty much ever since, off and on. It seems. And, and can you talk about her contributions? Yes, yeah, she's a you know a designer, a member of the guild, and costume and, and production design, but. She's never worked for anybody else because it wasn't a career. It was just because we kind of grew up together in a funny way. Right. As you say, meeting on that ship and, you know, we were just kids, really, 20. When I started doing things, she would just, because her interest was always in decorating anyway. And, you know, very very refined taste in things, very good with colors and made her own clothes and things. So she'd say, oh, you know, they should do this or they should have that or the girls in picnic, you know, they should – Although there were coloured dresses, I think it's better that they're in in an off-white, a cream, you know, so it's kind sure. of not only is it virginal, but it's sort of also, she said, like we're used to seeing black and white photos of that era, 1900. Yeah. And so there's a strange authenticity in the photo, which maybe will transmute to the film and colour yeah. may jar you. Right, right. So it was those kind of comments that generally were, well, why don't you do the wardrobe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Nice. And so gradually, we used to have a lot of fights, though. You know, it sort of took a while to get used to that, because being used to me having me at home, where she would, we would argue about something. Right. I would say, Wendy, let, please don't do it in front of fifty people. You know, if we want to disagree about something, you've got to do it <laughs> quietly to one side. You know. Right. Right. And she said, "Why? Why should you be the big boss directly? You know." You, and I said, "Well, we're not at home." You know. So it took a while. To, yeah. Yeah. To to sort it out, and then it did. Yeah. And, uh, and we've worked pretty much on every film together. Uh, just a few more questions. And, and uh, so you're clearly very well read and you do a lot of research and you have an appreciation for the, for art. And so can you talk about any of your artistic influences? If you had to you know, narrow it down to a, a handful. Oh, sculpture, I think, is, okay. is my primary love. But then that's kind of deeply personal because I do it as a hobby. I, you know, it's great having something to do with your hands while you're in between work like this kind of film work. When I say do sculpture, I'm, you know, I'm talking about uh, anything that really sculptors would probably call sculpture anymore. I really copy things out of books. You know, in other words, I work in sandstone, hammers and chisels, grinders, but I'll copy um, you know, a kind of little Roman head or I might uh, do things for the garden like that. Uh, I've done a mural recently based on a kind of... Um, uh, Buddhist um, panels that I saw in uh, Java. In, yeah. And so to the extent that people say, where did you get that? You know, they can look like the real thing, which is probably the link to the movie world I belong to. 
<laughs> kind of, uh, you know, um, props. Sure, sure. Uh, so I, when I first went to Europe, it was sculpture that hit me, just winded me to right. see the ruins in, in Greece and and then in Italy and so on and the carvings and, and, and so forth. So uh, you've talked about uh, a little bit about uh, the the video life of your film, so now being available for everyone. And, and so you have this, your history of cinema pretty much uh, of your creations mm online and available to anyone but have you have you thought about what you want peter weir's legacy to be uh as an artist have you really thought about that at all no i i'm i mean i i think uh you know i like this words of the the uh, potter that i once filmed um peter rushforth was retiring australian potter one of the few documentaries i made back in the 1970s and met his great mentor, a Japanese potter. I mean, pottery, you start with Japan, mm-hmm. uh, Shiga. And he was uh, firing some pots. I filmed him with Peter. And we got talking, Shiga and I. And Shiga talked about how the difference between art in Japan and the West. He said, you know, since the decline of religion, slow decline after the Renaissance, you know, you made the artist god. In our tradition with pottery, it was not like that. It was that you, you know, the early potters didn't even sign their works and they made utilitarian objects, bowls and cups, plates. And as far as the, you know, long apprenticeship went, when you eventually became a master, you didn't attempt to make a work of art. You simply attempted to make, using all of your skills, the best bowl or cup you could. And every now and again, the gods would touch your hands and that would be a work of art. So I, I loved it. I loved the yeah. idea and carried it through into films. So if there's anything of mine that, you know, could be worthy of that description, uh, then it wasn't really uh, my doing in a way. Well, I, th- I think that's a great place to end. And so I'd like to thank you for being such an outstanding guest of the university. And I'd like to thank you all for listening to Profiles. Thanks for having me. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.